recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christian Internet Radio. Today is Friday, May 8th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. We have a um, a forum at Christaginia.org. It's not it, it's well traveled. It gets about three hundred, four hundred visitors each day. Readers, not all of them are members, of course. We've um, we've always only had slightly over a hundred members. I think the peak was maybe in twenty eleven, perhaps, and there were maybe a hundred and thirty or a hundred and forty in there. We've never had more than that. And and um, I probably over the last five or five years or so since I began the forum, I probably deleted or deactivated, without exaggeration, five hundred accounts. That's because when accounts fall dormant, and I noticed that they're dormant for at least a year. Every once in a while, I go in and I just deactivate all the accounts or delete all the accounts that have been dormant for more than a year. And I prefer it that way. I don't delete the posts. I don't see myself as the owner of the posts. And it annoys me when users delete their own posts because I believe that, and and that's happened in the past, but we've stopped that behavior from being possible. It annoys me because I see those posts when they are um, answered and and parts of longer conversations which others engage in. Those posts belong to the forum and they don't even really belong to the person that posted them after they've been replied to and and after other forum members have, have engaged in them. The person that posted them should own the words but they shouldn't that they shouldn't care to remove those words from the forum because those words have have been invested in by everybody who's a member of the forum. So for that reason, it's my policy not to delete posts unless they're purposefully malicious. We, um, of course, we're always accepting new forum memberships, and I get a few each month, some of them I honor, and some of them I don't, for my own peculiar reasons. Sometimes you can just see the agenda in somebody's introductory email, or or sometimes those introductory emails are just suspicious for one reason or another. But I do accept new forum membership requests and welcome them, and um, those requests can be made at info at org. There are probably about 104 or 5 members of the forum now, and probably only about 60 of those people are active. The other 40 or so accounts will probably be deactivated sometime this year. The inactive accounts, I'm certain. Every once in a while, probably about every second or third new forum member. And we can never always tell who's going to have agendas and who isn't. But every once in a while, we get a new forum member who comes with the idea that 
they are going to instruct us, meaning the, the forum membership as a whole. They're going to correct some great wrong. We just had a certain clown like that this past week, and I will call her a clown. <laughs> That's exactly how she acted. To me, the ultimate arrogance, and this is the biblical definition of arrogance, the ultimate arrogance is to perceive that you know better than the Word of God. True Christian humility is to be willing, and we're not all perfect at it, but we should all try to be. True Christian humility is to be willing to submit to the Word of God. So if you have an idea and you believe that it's supported by a couple of scriptures, whatever, if it refutes, if, it, if, if your idea being true would mean that certain other scriptures are not true, then your idea is wrong and you are misinterpreting the scriptures that you use to support your idea. And that's simply because, as most sincere Christians understand, the Word of God does not contradict itself. You can't use your verses in the Bible to prove some other verses in the Bible wrong. Because the Word of God is not wrong, and you do not have greater authority than the Word of God. If you do that, if you attempt to do that, that is arrogance. These clowns that refute the, um, that there's a certain, well, well, he calls himself a CI pastor. He's really a pudgy little Jew boy. He's from Chicago. This pudgy little Jew boy has um, papers and podcasts entitled Refuting Oneness. He believes in threeness. He believes in the Trinity. There are three gods, but they're all one god, but they're three gods. And, and separate personalities. And, and that's just absurd. Jesus Christ said, I and my Father are one. He didn't say, I and my Father are three. Paul of Tarsus said that there is one Lord, one Kurios. Now, if Yahweh, the God of Israel, God the Father, is called Kurios all through the Old Testament, and in many passages in the New Testament, while at the same time Jesus Christ is called Kyrios in many passages in the New Testament, and there's one Kyrios, according to Paul of Tarsus, how do you get threeness out of that? If Philip said to Jesus Christ in John chapter 14, show us the Father, and Christ says, well, I've been with you all this time, and you have not, you do not know me. He was claiming that he was the Father, and he says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Because, of course, 
God in his spiritual form is invisible, and no man has ever seen him, as the apostles attest elsewhere. So, the only visible image of the Father that we can communicate with is Yahshua Christ. Is a Holy Spirit, well, that doesn't lead to Tunis because in John chapter 14, Yahshua Christ said, I will not leave you fatherless. He was promising. He was predicting his departure, telling the apostles, where I go, you cannot come, promising another comforter. And then with the other comforter and the promise of that, he says, which is ostensibly the Holy Spirit, he says, I will not leave you fatherless. I will come to you. Now, I think that's John 14. It might be verse 18. It's right around there. Now, the King James says, I will not leave you comfortless. But the word is orphanus, the Greek word. And orphanus is the word from which we get the English word orphan. It means fatherless. It means fatherless in Greek. It does not mean comfortless. In context, if we understood that Christ was Yahweh come in the flesh, we could say that it might mean comfortless, because without Yahweh our God, we should all be comfortless. But the word means fatherless, and Christ said, I will not leave you fatherless. And then he said, I will come to you. He's dead, right? He's talking about the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, right? He is asserting that he's the Father. When he departs from the apostles, they're not in the presence of the Father. He's asserting that he is the Comforter. That's oneness. That's not threeness. Yahweh God is one God. Hear ye, O Israel, Yahweh God is one God. Well, this person had an agenda, and they were going to pull out these scriptures that are going to prove oneness or prove that Yahweh God and, and Yahshua Christ are one and the same. They're going to prove him wrong with these other scriptures. So they're going to turn Paul's statement that is one Lord into a lie. They're going to turn the statement of Christ that I and my Father are one. Now, we can all count the one. They're going to turn that into a lie. O Israel, hear ye, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one God. They're going to turn that into a lie because they have an agenda. This is just exemplary, but this particular agenda, this support of the Catholic idea of the Trinity, or this, um, that this it, it also kind of feeds into the Jewish claim that Christians are um, polytheistic. This person ended their um, discourse by telling me that my finite mind can't understand what they're saying. Okay, well, that's pretty arrogant, too. 
when Christ said, Philip, I've been with you all this time, and you, have not, you, you do not know me, you say, show us the Father. I and my Father are one. Don't you know that I am the Father? That's what he's saying. He expected his disciples to be able to easily understand him. The Christian faith is not in the sophistry of the world, and the Christian faith is not so um, mystical that men can't understand it. It's very easy to understand it, and Christ expected us to understand it. So all this hocus-pocus about our finite minds not being able to understand it is just garbage. Well, that line cost that new person their forum account today. It's pretty interesting um, it, if you check out the active topics at the Christian Forum. I thought it was interesting that such a person could claim to want to join like-minded people and immediately have an agenda and, and, and be so arrogant as to plainly assert that certain scriptures are going to prove other Bible scriptures wrong. It's not that the person could prove me right or wrong or any other forum member. It's not us that counts. What counts is that we all submit to the Word of God and admit that it is true, and in that manner, our getting along with one another will just fall into place. It'll come naturally. So that's my discussion for this evening. I would bet that the person who was involved, the, the person who what was um, the one with the can, now canceled forum account, I would bet that person would probably never hear this. But um, that, that's the way it is. We all have to be always diligent in um, correcting our brethren with humility, but also be on the lookout for people with agendas. And, and those people are basically, even if they're Israelites, they're still acting like wolves in sheep's clothing. The Epistles of Paul, part, part 10, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, part 10. This, um, this segment of these presentations is subtitled, Judging by appearances, because we all certainly should, in spite of um, certain Judeo-Christian misinterpretations. This is probably the, um, off the top of my head, the 50th, I believe, presentation. I did one presentation on the importance of Paul to Christian identity. Not counting that one, this is the 50th expository presentation. In our series on the epistles of Paul, there could be 50 more.
We have already summarized the theme of the earlier chapters of Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. But we shall do so once more here. We think it's important to see this this overarching theme. When we read through 2 Corinthians, we see uh, a lot of seemingly disconnected topics, but they are all connected. They're all interwoven, and there's a general overarching theme, or several, actually. Over the first five chapters of this epistle, Paul had expounded at length upon the affliction and the encouragement which the children of Israel have in the gospel of reconciliation to Yahweh their God. And Yahweh's plan of mercy for Israel in that reconciliation. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul illustrated the responsibility which the children of Israel have as recipients of that gospel and that mercy which requires those who are turning to Christ to separate themselves from all of the sinners and from all of the unclean of the other races. And then Yahweh their God shall receive them and dwell with them. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul had turned to express his gratitude that the, that the Corinthians being grieved by his first epistle, had chosen to repent from the problems which Paul had addressed in his first epistle to them, and the joy which Titus had transmitted to him on account of their repentance and their abiding in Christ. In the eighth and ninth chapters of this epistle, Paul had turned to discuss the collections he had been taking on behalf of the poor of the saints in Jerusalem. However, that is also a part of the Christian obligation which Paul had begun to discuss in chapter 6 of the epistle. Therefore, we can determine that outside of a few short digressions, Paul's purpose so far in this epistle has has been to present two greater themes in a series of smaller discussions. While sometimes the themes are interwoven one with the other, the first theme, the theme of the, the Gospel of Reconciliation, the first theme dominates the context of the first part of the epistle, the first five chapters. And likewise, for the second theme, the first theme is the Gospel of Reconciliation and the mercy of God for the children of Israel. The second theme is the obligation of the children of the children of Israel upon accepting that offer of reconciliation to God, which is through Yahshua Christ. The first theme dominated the first five chapters, and the second theme dominates through verse 6 of this 10th chapter, where Paul had attested that the children of Israel would have a part in avenging all disobedience once their own obedience had been fulfilled. That obedience being Paul's topic of discussion since the beginning of chapter 6 of the epistle, it includes coming out from among the sinners and the unclean, meaning 
those who are not Israelites and being a separate people so that God may walk with them. That obedience also includes a summons to the Christian duty, which is in brotherly love and a willingness to Christian communion, as we have seen Paul explain at length in these most recent chapters, chapters 8 and 9. By doing these two things, separating from the rest of the world, and loving one's fellow Israelite brethren, and loving them to the point where they willfully participate in Christian communion with those brethren, the Christian fulfills his obligation to God and Christ. That has been the theme of this epistle, sent to Corinthians chapter 6. However, earlier, in his discussion concerning communion, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul had also mentioned the result of the failure to do these things, where he said, in reference to Christian communion, indeed, as often as you may eat this bread, and you may drink this cup, you declare the death of the prince, which means, which encompasses the idea that he died for be, on behalf of his people. So we should devote our lives to our brethren. You declare the death of the prince until he should come. Consequently, whoever would eat the wheat bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily will be liable of the body and blood of the prince. If you don't belong with his people, you don't belong. And you will be just as liable for those as those who killed him because you don't belong with his people and you're damaging his body. That's the idea that Paul reflects there. Whoever would eat the wheat bread or drink the cup of the prince unworthily will be liable of the body and blood of the prince. But a man must scrutinize himself, and thus from of the bread let him eat, and from of the cup let him drink. For he that is eating and is drinking eats and drinks condemnation for himself, not distinguishing the body. For this reason, there are many among you, feeble and sickly, and plenty have fallen asleep. If then we had made a distinction of ourselves, we have an obligation, a responsibility to do that, not to have Christian communion with those who are unworthy. If then we had made a distinction of ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged. But being judged by the prince, we are disciplined. And if you're not disciplined, you're a bastard and not a son. In order that we would not be condemned with the society. I'm going to um, make a short digression here, an unplanned digression. 
this same um, person that was just canceled from the Christagenia Forum raised a point in a particular thread dealing with um, people of mixed races, the so-called beasts of the field, whatever, dealing with this same topic and bringing this um, same heresy which comes out of this individual, this clown from Chicago, where this idea has been developed in certain Christian identity circles, and it's very treacherous and it's very dangerous, that since the, uh, the scripture says that every man, and it's in Ezekiel, and it's reflected in Jeremiah, that every man will die for his own sin will be punished for his own sin, and that the children will no longer be held accountable for the sins of the fathers, that we're getting to that point, that that's the prophecy is true. There's no doubt. We will get to that point, and that prophecy has to be true. But they use this idea in order to say that well, well, bastards, it's not their fault they're bastards, and the scripture says that they won't suffer for the sins of the Father. And, and that's another, what, what I like to call a Canaanite bait-and-switch, that they offer you one thing, and they're hiding something else behind their back, and that's what they're going to try to force on you. Where the scripture says that... Um, the sons won't suffer for the sins of the fathers. That's fine. But that has nothing to do with bastards. When you look at Hebrews chapter 13 and the words of Paul of Tarsus, I think it's chapter 13, verse 8. It might be chapter 12, verse 8. I'm sorry, I don't know anything about the Bible. Um, Paul of Tarsus says, I like to make that joke because I really don't know the chapters and verses that well, as well as I probably should. But I know the story, I think. Paul of Tarsus says that if you are without chastisement, then you are a bastard and not a son. It's very important to grasp that concept. A bastard is not a son. And if a bastard is not a son, then those prophecies concerning fathers and, and sons or fathers and children don't apply to bastards. It's that simple. The law of God is not made for the benefit of bastards. Imagine that. The law of God exists for the benefit of the Adamic man for the benefit of the children of Israel. It was only given to the children of Israel. The law of God does not exist for the benefit of bastards. The law of God is not for bastards. Bastards have no protection under those prophecies because bastards are not sons. Hebrews 13.8. Real simple. Those wolves in sheep clothing are trying to convince you that bastards are sons, 
They are liars. Bastards are not sons. You cannot make a bastard into a son. I'm sorry, it's Hebrews chapter 12, verse 8. I just checked. If bastards are not sons, then it's pretty obvious that the law, which applies to sons, has nothing to do with bastards. End of argument. The um, the Jewish infiltrators into Christian identity, who are trying to convince us that bastards are sons, are found to be the wolves in sheep's clothing, which they truly are. By their fruits you know them. Returning to our presentation of 2 Corinthians. Now Paul will change the topic once again. This time to discuss those men among the Corinthians who had been boasting and inflating themselves against others during this time of troubles and divisions within the Christian assembly of Corinth. Because we do not have the correspondence sent to Paul from the Corinthians, we can only glean information from the parts of the story in Paul's responses in his epistles. If we had the letters that the Corinthians had written to Paul, we would have a treasure. Paul had first alluded to these men in 1 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, where it is evident that they had their own agenda concerning the incident with the fornicator which Paul addresses there. Then in the opening verses of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul had asked whether he himself needed to be newly introduced to the Corinthians, answering his own question and asserting that he did not need such introductions. He then said, now confidence such as this we have throughout the anointed regarding Yahweh, not because we are competent by ourselves to reckon anything as from of ourselves, but our competency is from Yahweh, who makes us competent servants of a new covenant, not of letter, but of spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit produces life. After saying this, he proceeded to discuss certain differences between the Old and the New Covenants. And then in chapters 4 and 5, he explained the totality of the mercy of Yahweh God for Israel. This was all in relation to the same problem with the fornicator, which Paul used as an example for explaining forgiveness of sin and reconciliation to God in Christ. Then in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul said, We do not again introduce ourselves to you, rather giving to you an occasion of boasting on our behalf, in order that you should hold up against those boasting in appearance and not in heart. So Paul alludes to these same men earlier in 2 Corinthians, whom he had also alluded to in 1 Corinthians, in his first epistle to the Corinthians. 
And here in this next part of 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul shall discuss those men at length. With these things, it also becomes evident that those men who had boasted and inflated themselves had also been actively attempting to discredit the ministry of Paul in the eyes of the Corinthians. This is evident where Paul had commended the Corinthians for defending him, here in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, at verse 7, where he mentions Titus's report of the zeal which the Corinthians had on behalf of Paul. In other words, the Corinthians must have received Paul's first epistle and engaged in actively defending Paul and standing up for the word of God. This same thing was also evident earlier in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul answered those who examined me, as he called them, explaining certain aspects of his ministry in his own defense. So it's evident in 1 Corinthians that there was already an anti-Paul sect at Corinth, but that most of the Corinthians had defended Paul. These men are now the primary topic of discussion from this point through to the end of this epistle. And as Paul also does quite often, he uses himself as an example in his discussion. With this, we will commence from where we had left off in our last part of this series of presentations with verse 7 of 2 Corinthians chapter 10. But we will, we will begin with only the first clause of that verse. And, and I'm kind of laughing because this long start, and, and I'm going to read about seven words, maybe eight words, and, and talk for another page or so. The first clause of... Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 7, in the Christiania New Testament reads, you must look at things according to appearance. You, um, you won't really find a translation like that of that passage anywhere else. According to the Dell and Scott, the Greek word prosopon, Strong's number 4383, generally means the face, the visage, the countenance, one's look, outward appearance, or even beauty. Therefore, here it is appearance. The King James Version marks this clause as a question. However, the editors of the Novum Testamentum Greque do not mark it as a question. There is no interrogatory particle. And while a verb of the indicative mood may it sometimes be used in interrogation without such a particle, the verb here, which is blepete, blepete is the first, I'm sorry, is the present active second person plural of the verb blepo. Blepo is the first person present active, and that's usually the dictionary form 
when you look in Strong's Concordance, Thayer's Lexicon, Liddell and Scott, they usually use the um, first person present active form to list words that are verbs in dictionaries. It's Strong's number 991. Blepeke, the second person, plural of blepo, is either of the indicative or of the imperative mood. Here, in the Christogenian New Testament, we must read it as an imperative and esteem that reading to be consistent in context with the statements that follow this clause, which, of course, we will get to. We certainly should not believe in Bible translation by consensus. However, sometimes it is interesting to see how other versions have interpreted a certain clause, especially long after we have completed our own translation. For this, there is a website called Bible Hub, and I peek at it once in a while, probably once or twice a program. But of course, the Christogenian New Testament won't be found at Bible Hub. Looking at Bible Hub, at 2 Corinthians 10.7, only 10 of the 21 listed translations have this clause as a question. The other 11 don't. But all the remaining 11, some paraphrase the clause in a very non-literal translation, and others change the grammatical form of the verb from a second-person indicative or imperative verb into a participle, or have other slight variations which change the sense of the passage. As an example, one of these, the New English translation, has this same clause to read, you are looking at outward appearances. Now, literally, it would be, you look at outward appearances, if we accept brepete as an indicative, and there's nothing technically wrong with that, I personally would find fault with that because of the context of the rest of Paul's epistles to the Corinthians and other statements he made and the verses which follow in this very chapter. And we will explain that. The usual interpretations of this clause insist that Paul does not want the Corinthians to judge by outward appearances. However, in the context which Paul himself reveals here, he does indeed want the Corinthians to judge by appearances. The evidence of this is found later in this same discussion in chapter 11, at verse 22, and the topic doesn't change between here and there, where Paul asks, are they Hebrews? I am also. Are they Israelites? I am also. Are they offspring of Abraham? I am also. Therefore, we read the verb in this clause here in verse 7 as an imperative, where Paul is instructing the Corinthians that you must look at things according to appearance. Here in relation to this, we must make another digression. 
many Judaized Christians who read this verse as it is in the King James Version, where it asks, do you look at things according to appearance? They take that and they cross-reference it. They cross-reference it to verses such as Romans chapter 10, verse 12, where Paul states, for there is no distinction of Judean and Greek. And then they wrongly imagine that Paul is claiming that there are no racial barriers. That is a very wrong interpretation. Because not only Romans chapter 4, but also 1 Corinthians chapter 10 prove that both Greeks or Romans, both the Greeks or Romans whom Paul addresses and the Judeans who are of Israel are of the same race. If they're of the same race, then Romans 10.12 can't have anything to do with race. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul told his Greek readers, these people he's writing to in 1 Corinthians are Greeks, now I do not wish you to be ignorant, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all had passed through the sea and all up to Moses had been immersed in them, had immersed themselves in the cloud and in the sea. Therefore, it is clear that Paul must have been speaking to and about Israelites. Then later in that same chapter, Paul said, "Behold, Israel down through the flesh are not those who are eating the sacrifices, those who are pagans, partners of the altar." And then he explains, rather, that whatever the nation sacrifice, meaning the nations surrounding the Corinthians, they sacrifice to demons and not to Yahweh. Now, I do not wish for you to be partners with demons. These passages demonstrate that Paul's Gentiles, those nations of 1 Corinthians 10.20, were indeed scattered Israelites, and they were real Israelites, Israelites according to the flesh. And ancient history also shows Paul to have been correct. Therefore, if the Greeks whom Paul addresses were of the Israelites of the ancient dispersions who had gone off into paganism just as the Old Testament says that they did, then they are of the same race as the Judean Israelites. And if the Greeks whom Paul addresses are of the same race as the Judean Israelites, then where Paul says... There is no distinction of Judean and Greek. He is speaking a plain fact. Greek and Judean Israelites, both being of the same race, the only distinctions between them are the artificial constructs of man. And it's those constructs which Paul is attesting should be dissolved in Christ. The statement. The statement has nothing to do with race. 
and everything to do with religious status and custom. The context is set, the context of Romans 10.14. I'm sorry, Romans 10.12. The context is set in Romans chapter 9 where Paul quotes from Hosea those passages, some of which we will quote later here this evening, those passages which have to do with the Israelites of the ancient dispersions. In the later part of that chapter, Paul is contrasting the Israelites of the dispersions called the nations, the nations of Israel according to the flesh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul is contrasting the Israelites of those nations to the Israelites of the remnant in Judea who had simply retained the name. Paul had opened wrote Romans chapter 9 with a prayer for his kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites, and proceeded to compare Jacob and Esau, because many of the Judeans were actually Edomites, whom he then referred to as vessels of destruction. So, while there was no difference between true Israelite Judeans, Israelites according to the flesh, Romans 9, and Greeks, who are Israelites according to the flesh, 1 Corinthians 10, while there was no difference between true Judeans and Greeks. There certainly was a difference between true Judeans and Edomite Judeans, as Christ had also made mention in the revelation of those saying for themselves to be Judeans, and they are not. Indeed, Christians must look at things according to appearance, as Paul had said in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that if then we had made a distinction of ourselves, perhaps we would not be judged. That's the same admonishment that Yahweh gave to the children of Israel all the way back in the book of the Exodus, in the book of Leviticus, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the book of Joshua, in the book of Judges, hasn't changed all the way all the way here to 2 Corinthians. Here's the balance of verse 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 10. If one is confident in himself to be of the anointed, he must again reckon this by himself, that just as he is of the anointed, even so are we, meaning Paul and Timothy. Here Paul insists that the Corinthians can judge whether he and Timothy are of the anointed, or of Christ, as the King James has it, based upon appearances. This interpretation is augmented later in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul, comparing himself with those who are his adversaries, asks, are they Hebrews? I am also. Are they Israelites? I am also. Are they offspring of Abraham? I am also. 
However, here, Paul is intending for them to judge based upon the appearance of his ministry or his or its fruits, as well as the appearance of his person. And likewise, in that passage we just quoted from chapter 11, in the very next verse, Paul asks, are they servants of Christ? And he answers by asserting, I am even more. In our use of the term anointed in these passages rather than Christ, we illustrate that Paul is speaking of the body of Christ, which is the Israel of God as a collective. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, as well as in Romans 4, Romans 9, and 1 Corinthians 10, that one must be of the seed of Abraham through Isaac and Jacob to be of the faith of Abraham, and that Paul's ministry to the Gentiles was indeed a ministry to Israel according to the flesh. Christians, therefore, have an obligation to judge these things according to appearance and to make a distinction of themselves. Verse 8. Then it perhaps... I would boast somewhat more excessively concerning our authority, which the prince has given for building, the, the majority text has given to us, for building and not for your destruction, I shall not be disgraced. As Paul illustrated of himself as well as, as well as of Apollos and Peter, in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For we are fellow workmen of Yahweh, Yahweh's husbandry. You are Yahweh's building. Paul boasts not of himself, but of his authority to help build the house of Yahweh in the body of Christ from among the nations of scattered Israel, as his original commission recorded in the words of Christ in Acts chapter 9 indicates, where Christ himself says to Hananias, speaking of Paul, for he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. Then, as Luke records it, Christ also says to Hananias, for I, meaning Christ, shall indicate to him how much it is necessary for him to suffer on behalf of my name. Later here, in chapter 11, Paul himself recounts some of those same trials which he had faced in the execution of his commission. Paul is writing this just over 20 years after he had received that commission having spent over 18 months among the Corinthians and several years having elapsed since that time, as he writes this letter, his readers must have been familiar with at least many of those trials which Paul had endured. Keeping all of these things under consideration, we may see these chapters with a clear perspective. Judging by appearances, one accepts those who are Israelites and who are edifying the body of Christ for the advancement of the kingdom of God. One must reject those who do otherwise. Verse 9, 
at which I would not think, as if to frighten you through letters, because the letters, says one, are burdensome and severe, but the presence of the body weak and the speech nothing. Now, the Codex Vaticanus and the majority text have the letters they say are burdensome and severe. The difference of one letter in the verb. We read the um, third person singular, so we have the letters says one are burdensome and severe. Evidently, Paul was a humble and a mild man in person. Although Luke described Paul as a young man in Acts chapter 7, he must have been at least 30 years of age since he took a leadership position among the Judeans at that time as a young man. So when he was writing this epistle, Paul must have been at least 50 years of age and may have been a few years older than that. A few short years later, writing the epistle to Philemon from captivity in Rome, Paul described himself as an elder. He would have been at least in his mid-50s by then. Here it is further evident that at least one of Paul's detractors in Corinth was taking advantage of Paul's humble stature in the, in the attempt to discredit him, purporting that since Paul was weak in appearance, then the strong words in his epistles had no weight. As for the details of Paul's stature, there are no legitimate extant physical descriptions of the apostle. But Paul refutes the idea here in, in, in the next verse. Such a one must reckon this, that as we are in pretense through letters being absent, even so in reality being present. Now the, the phrases for in pretense and in reality are metaphorical translations. Liddell and Scott explain the metaphor in their definition of the word logos. Literally, Paul may have been represented as saying, as we are in word through letters being absent, even so indeed being present. While Paul may have been of a humble stature in person, here he refutes the notion that he was a weak man in person. Speaking of his impending visit, which was then delayed, Paul had said in his first epistle to the Corinthians, what do you wish? Should I come to you with a rod or in love and gentleness in spirit? 1 Corinthians 4.21. Paul was confident that he had power in person, and his detractors evidently took his words lightly while he was away. That's always the case, isn't it? Verse 12, For we do not venture to rank or compare ourselves with any of those recommending themselves. Rather, these, measuring themselves with themselves and comparing themselves with themselves, do not understand. Now, we will not boast in regard to things without measure, 
but according to the measure of the standard of which Yahweh has of measure distributed to us to reach even as far as you. There's an alternate reading in the Codex Claromontanus, which wants the words for do not understand in verse 12, and the words for now, and we will boast in verse 13. The reading is absolutely contrary to what Paul had intended, since it removes the point of comparison. The... Um, The better translations probably come from examinations of all the ancient manuscripts. The King James Version had the majority text, and they had access to the Codex Beze and the Codex Claromontanus. They really didn't have any access to anywhere near the ancient manuscripts, the number of truly ancient manuscripts that we have access to today. Here, Paul insists that his enemies are recommending themselves, measuring themselves with their own standards, and therefore they are self-promoters rather than true apostles of Christ. On the other hand, Paul attests that the success of his ministry and its accordance with the word of God is sufficient proof that the ministry is legitimate. Judging by appearances, we must judge according to the word of God and the standards of Scripture. From Matthew chapter 7, the words of Christ, Therefore, all things whatsoever you would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it because most people are bastards. Beware of false prophets, which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles? And by this we know that false prophets attempt to gather grapes from thorns and figs from thistles. Anyone who attempts to gather anything but sheep to the fold is actually a scatterer. Even so, every good tree brings forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree brings forth evil fruit. It's not a matter of choice. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, even if it wants to. Neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit, even if it wants to. Every tree that brings not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits you shall know them, those people trying to make sons into bastards. Not everyone that says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. 
This is related to gathering grapes from thorns. The thorns cannot enter the kingdom of God. Not even thorns that believe can be saved. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. In the standard of Scripture, Yahweh tells us who he knows in Amos chapter 3. Hear this word that Yahweh has spoken against you, O children of Israel, against the whole family which I brought up from the land of Egypt, saying, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Judging by appearances, Scripture must be the rule for such judgment. For not as if reaching to you do we overextend ourselves. Verse 14. Indeed, as far as you, we also came before with the good message of the anointed. Paul referring to his first ministry in Corinth. The Codex Vaticanus wants the word for not. In that case, we would read the word if, as it often is, as an interrogatory particle. For for as if reaching to you, do we overextend ourselves? Here Paul is making an analogy, and even a play on words, with his use of the term for measure, insisting that even with the size of his ministry and the distance which it covered, he has still not overextended his reach, and therefore he remains within the measure which God had granted to him. Verse 15, not in regard to things without measure, boasting in others' troubles, but having hope, increasing your faith, with you to be magnified in accordance with our standard for abundance. Ostensibly, the phrase, boasting in others' troubles, describes those among the assembly at Corinth who, as Paul described in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, had inflated themselves with the troubles and divisions within the assembly caused by what should be done in regards to the fornicator. Paul alluded to these people once again here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he mentioned those boasting in appearance and not in heart. Paul's standard for abundance is from the word of God in scripture, and he asserts such abundance is that which Yahweh has of measure distributed to us. In the verse which follows, we see that the abundance he references is in relation to the riches of the gospel, where he says to announce the good message to those beyond you not ready to boast by another standard for things, but he who is boasting in Yahweh, he must boast. Paul asserts once again that his opponents are measuring themselves not in accordance with the word of God, but by their own standards instead. Boasting in Yahweh, evidently one may do so if one is following Yahweh's standard for things, which are detailed in his word, and his law. The scripture which Paul cites, where he says, 
he who is boasting in Yahweh, he must boast, seems, seems to appear first in the prayer of Anna, the mother of the prophet Samuel, but only in a version which is found in the Septuagint, in 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 10, which says in part, Yahweh will weaken his adversary. Yahweh is holy. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, nor let the mighty man boast in his strength, and let not the rich man boast in his wealth, but let him that boasts boast in this, to understand and know Yahweh, and to execute judgment and justice in the midst of the earth. The Lord, or Yahweh, has gone up to the heavens, and is thundered. He will judge the extremities of the earth, and he gives strength to our kings, and he will exalt the horn of his anointed. And Sir Francis Brenton wrote Christ in his version of the Septuagint rather than anointed, and will exalt the horn of his Christ. However, Paul may have been invoking Jeremiah 9.24 instead, which certainly seems to be the case where he also cited this same passage, this scripture, in 1 Corinthians at the end of chapter 1. From Jeremiah chapter 9, from verse 23, Thus saith Yahweh, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, Neither let the mighty man glory in his might. Let not the rich man glory in his riches. But let him that glorieth glory in this, that he understandeth and knoweth me, that I am Yahweh, who exercises loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. And for these things I delight, saith Yahweh. The passage is quite similar to the one in the prayer of Anna. Verse 18, for it is not he who is recommending himself who is the person approved, but he whom the prince recommends, he whom the Lord recommends, if you will. Here Paul is not referring to his commission from Christ, but he is rather asserting that the proof of his ministry is in its fruits and in his ability to conduct it. Paul had treated the same issue in chapter 9 of his first epistle to the Corinthians, where he had written, Am I not free? Am I not an ambassador? Have I not seen Yahshua Christ our Prince? Are you not my work in the Prince? If to others I am not an ambassador, yet at any rate to you I am. Indeed, the assurance of my message, in other words, the legitimacy of his apostleship is you in the prince. With this, we shall commence with chapter 11 of the second epistle to the Corinthians. I would be obliged were you to bear with me in a little folly. Rather, indeed, bear with me. It becomes evident later in this chapter and especially from verse 16, that Paul considers it foolishness to have to compare himself and the course of his own ministry to these others who were his detractors in the analogies which he is about to make. We see this is what is indicated later in verse 16 of this chapter where he says, I say again, 
Let no man think me a fool. If otherwise, yet as a fool, receive me. In other words, if you think I'm a fool, receive me anyway, and receive me as a fool, that I may boast a little. However, Paul still finds it necessary to make these analogies, even though he considered it folly, and to discuss some of the events of his ministry. Note also that Paul considers mere mentions of the trials of his ministry and the many things which he had overcome as boasting and therefore as folly, which reflects a very humble attitude. Judging by appearances, Paul is conscientious that he may appear to be bragging and therefore he qualifies his descriptions with these assertions that he is not truly bragging, and that it is indeed folly to do so. Verse 2, for I admire you with the zeal of Yahweh, for I have joined you to one husband to present a chaste virgin to Christ. The phrases, I admire, and with zeal, or, as I just said, with the zeal, I had very reluctantly added only a few articles to my translations. The phrases, I admire, and with zeal, are from two different forms of the same word, the verb zelao, Strong's number 2206, and the noun zelos, Strong's number 2205. The King James Version has jealous and jealousy, which are also acceptable in this context. In Hosea chapter 1, and from the corresponding historical records, when the prophet said that he had written, we see that as the prophet was writing, the children of Israel were being put off from the face of Yahweh their God. However, they were put off with promises of future reconciliation, which were also recorded by the prophet. We will read from Hosea chapter 1, verse 9, the word of God. Then said God, call his name Lo-Ami, for ye are not my people, which is what Lo-Ami actually means, and I will not be your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said to them, Ye are not my people, there it shall be said unto them, Ye are the sons of the living God. Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Jezreel means God sows. We see as they're put off from the face of Yahweh, they become a greater multitude. Both Paul in Romans chapter 9, 9.26, and Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2, had quoted from this same passage of Hosea in relation to the nations to whom Paul had brought the gospel. 
those nations, as Paul ascertains in Romans chapter 4, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and in Galatians chapters 3 and 4, those nations were indeed descended from those ancient dispersions of the children of Israel. That those Israelites of those same ancient dispersions would eventually be presented as a bride to Christ is a fulfillment of the prophecy of Hosea concerning Israel, which is found in Hosea chapter 2. There in that chapter, the word of Yahweh first describes Israel's sin and punishment, and then Yahweh says, from verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. The same symbolism we see of the woman with the twelve stars who bore the Christ child, representing the children of Israel as a nation who fled into the wilderness in the Revelation, who was taken into the wilderness by a great eagle, I believe. And after describing the rehabilitation of Israel in Hosea chapter 2, verses 15 through 18, Yahweh says in verse 19, And I will betroth thee, speaking to the children of Israel, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yeah, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know Yahweh. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith Yahweh, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth, and the earth shall hear the corn, and the wine, and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth, and they shall hear that God sows. And I will sow her, meaning the children of Israel, unto me in the earth. And I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. The children of Israel, they were cast off from the face of Yahweh. And I will say to them who were not my people, the children of Israel who were cast off from the face of Yahweh. Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. Jezreel means God sows. And the Christian identity message allows us to understand what God sows. Therefore, this message must be the beginning of the fulfillment of the words, they shall hear Jezreel. The same promise of the reconciliation of Israel to Yahweh as a bride to a bridegroom is also portrayed in this manner in the prophet Isaiah. In the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 61, we read a message which Christ himself had quoted in reference to his own ministry, as it is recorded in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of Yahweh God is upon me, 
because Yahweh has anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of Yahweh, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn, to appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he might be glorified. Likewise, the marriage supper of the Lamb, described in Revelation chapter 19, also depicts the day of vengeance of Yahweh over his enemies. The references to the meek, the brokenhearted, the captives, and them that are bound in prison are all references to the children of Israel in the ancient Assyrian and Babylonian captivities. Following this, Isaiah chapter 61 says further on, verse 6, But you shall be named the priests of Yahweh. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. Ye shall eat the riches of the nations, which are the other Genesis 10 nations of Isaiah's time, and history shows that fulfillment. And in their glory you shall boast yourselves. For your shame you shall have double. And for confusion they shall rejoice in their portion. Therefore in their land they shall possess the double. Everlasting joy shall be unto them. For I, Yahweh, love judgment. I hate robbery for burnt offering, and I will direct their work in truth, and I will make an everlasting covenant with them, and their seed shall be known among the nations, and their offspring among the people. All that see them shall acknowledge them that they are the seed which Yahweh is blessed, that all of that pertains to the cast-off children of Israel, who are Jezreel, or what God sows. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. So in Israel, fulfilling the word of Yahweh, is described as a bride adorned for, his, for her groom. The theme is continued in Isaiah chapter 62. We will read from verse 1, not the whole chapter, but a portion of it. For Zion's sake, I will not hold my peace, and for Jerusalem's sake, I will not rest until the righteousness thereof go forth as brightness, and the salvation thereof as a lamp that burneth. And the nations shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of Yahweh shall name. Yahweh's people would no longer be called by their old names, which also establishes that those who, after Christ, still continue to use those old names are not Yahweh's people, and they never were. Thou shalt also be a crown of glory 
in the hand of Yahweh, and a royal diadem in the hand of thy God. Thou shalt no more be termed forsaken. Neither shall thy land any more be termed desolate. But thou shalt be called Hephzibah, and thy land Beulah. For Yahweh delights in thee, and thy land shall be married. The meanings of Hephzibah and Beulah. For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall thy sons marry thee. And as the bridegroom rejoices over her, over the bride, so shall thy God rejoice over thee. And skipping to verse 11, Behold, Yahweh has proclaimed unto the end of the world, Say ye to the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy salvation cometh. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him, and they shall call them the holy people, the redeemed of Yahweh, and thou shalt be called sought out, a city not forsaken. The children of Israel married to God in Christ is a matter of biblical prophecy. That same allegory is repeated in the Revelation and in the parables of Christ. And Paul is teaching this to Israelites of the ancient dispersions, as he had also attested in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 of these very Corinthians. Therefore, John the Baptist said of Christ, as it is recorded in, in John chapter 3, Ye yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but that I am sent before him. He that has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. This, my joy, therefore, is fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. And then later, as it is recorded in Matthew chapter 9, Christ had said of himself and his disciples, Can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them, and then shall they fast. Paul of Tarsus certainly understood that his bringing the gospel of Christ to the lost sheep of the ancient dispersions of Israel was a step in preparing the bride for reconciliation to her groom and the turning of the children of Israel Back to Yahweh their God. That's the allegory he makes here. Paul goes on to make another allegory, this time from Genesis chapter 3. But I fear, lest in any way, as the serpent had thoroughly beguiled Eve in his villainy, your thoughts would be corrupted from that sincerity and that purity which is with the anointed. And the majority text has some slight variations here, wanting the words and that purity for one. The phrase thoroughly beguiled 
is from the Greek word ex apateo. Strong's number 1818. Liddell and Scott define the verb as to deceive or thoroughly beguile. The word's from a strengthened form of the verb apateo, Strong's number 538. Likewise, the corresponding noun, ex apate, is gross deceit. Both words were extant in Greek from the time of the earliest poets, Homer and Hesiod. The word may have been rendered as completely seduced, or something along similar lines. Liddell and Scott define the root word, apateo, itself as to cheat, to trick, to outwit, to beguile, or in the passive, to be deceived, where any, any of the other meanings may also have been included, to be cheated, to be tricked. Being tricked, beguiled, or deduced, I'm sorry, or deceived, must, however, come at some expense. You must be deceived of something. Where in Genesis 3.13, Eve is depicted as having said, the serpent deceived me, and I did eat. The word for deceived in the Septuagint is a form of the same verb, apateo. Paul used both of these words, apateo and exapateo, when writing of the same event, once again, in 1 Timothy chapter 2, where the Christogonia New Testament records him as having said, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman had been thoroughly beguiled when the transgression occurred. And at least, I would say, at least Eve had an excuse, and therefore the greater fault lies with Adam. Quoting the internet version of the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, an analogy is a comparison of two things based on their being alike in some way. Here, the common ground for the deception of Eve and Paul's warning the Corinthians of deception is the sincerity and purity which is expected of a chaste virgin. Here we will quote from four Maccabees, from the text found in Brenton's Septuagint. This is a work which was quite popular among early Christians, and we shall cite it in order to exhibit what Paul was referring to here in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter, where we see a mother lamenting the loss of her husband. 4 Maccabees chapter 18, verse 7. And the righteous mother of seven children spoke also as follows to her offspring. I was a pure virgin and went not beyond my father's house, but I took care of the built-up rib. No destroyer of the desert or ravisher of the plain injured me, nor did the destructive, deceitful snake make spoil of my chaste virginity. And I remained with my husband during the period of my prime. An analogy is only effective if one of the things which are being compared is familiar to the reader. 
This passage from 4 Maccabees depicts exactly how the episode between Eve and a serpent was understood by at least some early Christians, and probably by quite a few. Paul makes the same analogy here. The bride of Adam was deceived out of her virginity by the serpent of Genesis. And Paul warned that the assembly of Corinth may be deceived out of their own analogous spiritual chastity by satanic messengers of like kind with that same serpent. The entire epistle of Jude is devoted to revealing the nature of this same corruption to which Paul is referring. For Paul says further on in this very chapter that such as these are false ambassadors, treacherous workers, transforming themselves into ambassadors of Christ. And no wonder, for the adversary himself transforms himself into a messenger of light. And that doesn't necessarily, necessarily represent anything mystical. It's only an evil person posing as a good person. Therefore, it is no big thing if even his ministers transform themselves, these evil men, turn themselves into ministers of justice. We see that in rabbis every day. Of whom the end shall be in accordance with their deeds. These are indeed Jude's angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Jude calls them the infiltrators, reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. The chains are metaphorical. These people are all around us. To help avoid such deception, the body of Christ must judge according to appearances, not gathering thorns in place of grapes or goats to the sheepfold, and making a distinction of themselves, as Paul exhorts in 1 Corinthians 11.31. That concludes tonight's presentation. Tomorrow night, the terror famine in the Ukraine. Sunday afternoon, Christiania Europe with Sven Longshanks. White Nationalist Cognitive Disconnect, Part 2. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening.